This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Don Franks. to episode 89 of the See Here podcast. Welcome. We're proudly part of the Pantheon network of music-related podcasts. My name is Morris. Thanks a lot. The film that we're going to be discussing this month is Rock and Rule, and I'll be joined by my wonderful compadres, Mr. Tim Merrill out in Brantford. Howdy, howdy. And Mr. Bernard Stickwell out in Bath. Hey there. We're going to be talking about rock and rule, and what we'll do now is we're going to go play the trailer, and then we'll come back to be very conversive about this dystopian future type of film. What am I saying? We'll be back in a moment. Rock and rule. Good band, hot music. The best of times. It could have lasted forever. forces of music, magic, and technology collide, bringing you head to head with a beast from another dimension. The Beauty, songs by Deborah Harry. The Beast, songs by Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. The Beat, songs by Cheap Trick and Earth, Wind and Fire. Love. 
And we're back from break. Morris here, Tim there, Bernie somewhere else over there. And we're going to be talking about a 1983 piece of animation from the Nelvana studio in Canada. Rock and Rule, released in 1983, but for reasons that we'll get into, should have been released in 1982. Directed by a fellow called Clive Smith. Written by Patrick Lubert, Peter Sorda, and script by John Halfpenny. The voices, and this is an interesting story unto itself, Don Franks as the character of Mock. There are two guys playing Omar, one in the Canadian released version, one in the US version, and we'll come to that story. Greg Salata for the Canadian version, Paul Lamatte for the US version, Susan Roman as Angel, and the one name that I actually knew, I'm embarrassed to say, was Catherine O'Hara as Aunt Edith. And the songs were sung by... Robin Zander of Cheap Trick as the voice of Omar, Debbie Harry as the voice of Angel, and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop both doing their takes on songs sung by the villain of the piece, Mock. The IMDb description, a malevolent rock star kidnaps a singer to force her to participate in the summoning of a demon and her band must help her stop him. Yep, okay, I guess that's a relatively to the point type of description. My description is it's a mix of the Apple, the Evil Dead, Scooby-Doo and Mad Max placed in a blender. Tim, you've loved this film for years, so I'd love to get your take on your history with it. Okay, Nirvana Studios was a studio that came out of the Toronto area in the late 70s, early 80s, and they produced a lot of animation for the Canadian Broadcasting Company and then a lot of the early uh, evolving uh, cable companies that came up in uh, Canada in the 80s. And I remember first seeing this as a kid, and I think it was either broadcast on CBC or TV Ontario, which was our government broadcast channel. And anyway, this is a film that's not seen, hasn't been seen by a lot of people. And I think that we've already done a little bit of animation, you see here, when we did American Pop. And there's the, uh, the big elephant in the room, heavy metal, that we haven't hit yet. But this is one I think that, like I said, we said last episode, it was easily accessible on YouTube. And I think there's a real charm to this film. And it's edgy, but not that edgy. I mean, for kids, when we were kids at the time seeing this, we thought, wow, this is pretty hip. But then, you know, other things came along that really blew this out of the water. Things like Lord of the Rings, when Bashki did Lord of the Rings, and we saw that later, and then Heavy Metal or some other animated features that uh, really took our interest. But Rock and Rule, to me, like, this is basically Dante's story. You know, the, this is a classic story done through a future uh, era that's a lot of fun. And, and I've always loved this film. Bernie, what were your initial thoughts? Was this your first time? It was, yeah. First viewing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I very much like the aesthetic, the look and feel of the animation. You can put it in the same ballpark as, like Tim was saying, some of the Ralph Bakshi stuff, uh, Heavy Metal and Lord of the Rings. And I guess even like uh, Nine Lives of Fritz the Cat, mm. things like that. And just the, the look and feel, it's got a... I mean, considering it was made in, what, 82? Apparently they started making it in 1979 and it was completed in 82. Right. For reasons we'll get into later, it didn't get released for another year or so. It's definitely got a kind of 70s sort of post-hippie rock and roll sort of psychedelic burnout kind of (laughs) edge to it. And and, and again, it's, it's in the animation. It's slightly... 
don't know what the word is. It's kind of a bit scratchy and rough and ropey, but at the same time, right. it's actually quite elegant and quite realistic. Some of the movements of characters and things like that. You could totally so, see this being another, if it was a little raunchier, you could totally see this as being one of the other episodes of Heavy Metal. Almost. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I mean, like, yeah, you, you've, yeah. You've, you've seen Heavy Metal, Bernie, right? Not for years, but I have seen okay. it, yeah. There's one episode in particular with Heavy Metal where they've got the two stoners on the big ship that are sniffing all the cocaine and they've got yeah, the, yeah. the the Emirates <laughs> robot right well yeah, yeah. This, the animation is almost totally on par with this there you go yeah yeah definitely so i just I, i'm a big fan of that aesthetic just that that kind of that sort of feeling and emotion that stuff from that period just seems to evoke in me. And it's all hand-drawn too, which is... Yes, like, precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah, get that feeling is, anymore now. You don't. It's just, it's, you know, it's a thing of the past now, isn't it? Most of it does look hand-drawn, but there were some moments like, say, for instance, when we're looking into the computer on board the ship, the one that's the HAL-like computer that's telling right. the mock, as he's looking into that with that 2001, end of 2001 effect, there would have been maybe some fairly basic early computer animation or something that would have been machine generated i can't imagine that that was it's a similar oh, no, they... vibe though to something like tron isn't it and it's not as, as advanced right. as that but it's got I again that kind of aesthetic they were, able, they were able to incorporate elements of that only just for like brief moments though because yeah, the yeah. technology really hadn't quite met up people's expectations certainly not cgi but computer animation of some kind just to right. evoke that kind of digital computer feel that the, uh, I guess, again, the early 80s, that was, you know, that seemed like the future, didn't it? So mm-hmm. Just sort of give my initial impressions, because I, I sort of think I see where you're going with this, Bernie, where you wanted to emphasize the visual side of it. Yeah, I'd, I'll flat out say it. I, I like the aesthetic. I like certain aspects of it. But as a whole, I wasn't a massive fan. And I'll, I'll get on to why that's the case a bit later. But yeah, I'm, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the movie as a whole but yeah sorry carry on morris i imagine that if this was a film that i had watched without it being something that i had to analyze or talk about for a podcast i probably thought yeah that was a really great way to spend 80 minutes and there's a lot that i still like about the film i'd say probably that for me one of the weaknesses was in maybe the editing because there were moments where we get from one part of the story to another part of the story and i think hang on what happened in between mm-hmm. and maybe a second watch if you're listening to the dialogue a bit more closer maybe it made more sense but in a way i sort of feel like it's not real i mean it's a valid criticism but it's for a film like this maybe you shouldn't be making criticisms like that i don't really know to be fair and this is no you know not an excuse but i mean novana you know was kind of a fledgling animation studio when they came up with this right mm. and the funny thing is is that canada always kind of got this this kind of label that was kind of unfair in a way that when films were put out in Canada, they were subpar. You know, when anything was put out in Canada, it was subpar compared to America. It's like, you know, you've got the American version and then you got the Canadian version. We've gone through that for so many years. And then, you know, it took years to realize after people like Cronenberg, after people like Adam McGoyan, after all the comedy that came out of Canada, Second City, that people suddenly went, oh, wait a minute. You know, like we totally mislabeled all this. Like what we thought was so par was actually pretty decent. Mm. But I think that this came out of an initial fledgling animation studio where this kind of wanted to be one of the, the flagship things that they did just to kind of put their mark out there. 
because there were a lot of people from Novana that went on to work with Don Bluth and went on to work in Pixar. So it's almost like Novana was almost like a farm team in a way. But I mean, look, I think is probably what Bernie and I would push forward on this. Our considerations with the film are not visual. And so you're saying that these guys would go on to work with on an American tale or something with Don Bluth or or Pixar. That's from the visual side of it. And no, what you're talking about is the plot and the editing and just the overall. Yeah. Words to the wise guy. Be nice. Or be dog food. I think this is where a little bit of the history behind this film is probably important to put into perspective because I was watching one of those EPKs that they had on YouTube. I think it came out on the DVD edition of the film. Plus, also read a really lengthy interview with Clive Smith. And I think a couple of things that are important to take into account was that one, the film was often written on the fly. They didn't work from a fully labeled out script. Now, that sort of thing might be common within the film industry but for animation to be writing the story as you go it seems to me almost unheard of because you know everything's everything's got to be planned out so maybe some of the story weaknesses are in relation to that very thing being written on the fly the other thing is the film was being distributed in the states and i imagine partly being financed by mgm this film cost eight million dollars in 1979 to 1982 Really? Holy yep. shit, I didn't realise that. It made back about $30,000 from wow. very limited screenings in the state. So MGM, they came along and they said, we have some issues with this film. First of all, get rid of the voice of Omar, which was this fellow Greg Salata. We don't like it. And that was the version that went to Canadian broadcast television. For right. American redistribution in theatres, they got a fellow called Paul Lamatt. Well, you know who Paul Lamatt is? Paul Lamatt was in American Graffiti. He was the uh, race car, uh, the hot rod guy. Was that him? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Paul Matt's been in a lot of movies, yeah. And Milner, the front end of this this, this thing you're driving looks a little low. No, sir. No, no. It's 12 and a half inches, regulation size. Now, it's been checked several times. You can check it if you'd like, sir. But once again, we get a case of American interference. The other thing is that originally the plan was, so as I read, was that the film was going to be purely a kid's film. And mm-hmm. I don't know whether it was MGM. And this would be rather unusual if it was the case where MGM comes along and says, hey, we want this to be a little bit more for the grown-ups." I mean, normally it's the other way around. Now we want this to be mm-hmm. more family friendly. But that's why you end up with a film that, I sort of think in some ways doesn't know what it wants to be. And there are some things that are very not kid friendly. I I think at one point in the Canadian version, and I I watched the American version, but I did look on YouTube because I got both versions there. I did catch bits and pieces of the Canadian version. So I don't think it's in the American version where Omar calls, I can't remember if it's Mock or whether it's one of the Schlepper brothers, calls him Dick Nose. You're going to apologize, rude boy. I'm sorry. Dick knows. No, it's one of the Schlepper brothers. Right. Okay. From the 1990s onwards, I mean, okay, I know that certainly in the early history of American animation, before Disney came and took over everything, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was meant more for adults, but that was more because it was political satire or the like that kids would would never get. And Europe has always had a history of animation being across the board for adults, but it's only because of Disney and Hanna-Barbera that they said, no, animation is purely a children's 
children's media. I mean, it's not like till you get to the 70s where Ralph Bakshi is making Fritz the Cat and we, we spoke about American pop. Just come back to Europe for a second. We spoke very early on in The Life of Sea here. We're speaking about Allegro non Troppo. And that was, right. that was an adult animation film. But for America and, and when I, so when I'm saying North America, I'm sort of counting Canada as part of that. It's a rarity. So you get your anthropomorphic characters. You get the people who are supposed to be mutated rats. And so like you get your, the sidekicks in the band like Dizzy and Stretch who look like they could be the wacky sort of Hanna-Barbera or Disney type of characters, but you get Mock, who's genuinely frightening, and you get acts of violence which are meant for the adults. So I think one of the problems is that the film doesn't always know what it wants to be. And for me, the highlight was a very adult scene, which we'll get to shortly when I want to talk about the music. One thing that I will say, and I know you might think this is a bit of a stretch, but I sort of saw this film as being a bit of a class struggle, a generational struggle. I mean, I know that might have been just about the point where a lot of the original big bands like The Who and The Rolling Stones, they're wanting to be swept under the carpet by the new generation of punk. It was a generation gap. I know that our good buddy Eric Reanimator likes to sort of say, yeah, the boomer generation, but I don't know that they were using that expression just then, just yet. But just about the time where the new breed of bands like the Sex Pistols and the Damned and any of those English and American punk bands were trying to sweep the old dinosaurs under the carpet. So this, to me, you know, Mock is old generation. He's pissed off because no one remembers him anymore. And this new struggling band, he's trying to keep them out of the way. So this is as much, to me, a good story about the new generation trying to get their due. And, like, if you think about it, that's not an uncommon thing within rock films if you go back to a hard day's night you know what's an interesting thing what you're saying only a couple years back from this film i think there's a real parallel to a see here favorite phantom of the paradise yeah i actually yeah i completely get that yep yeah because mock is like trying to groom his plan you know like making he's already made his deal with the devil and he's trying to bring in the next generation of that you know? he's trying to lure angel with right. promises of fame but he has a more sinister plan for her just like with Swan, he, he's got a more sinister plan for Phoenix. 100%, absolutely, that's a great comparison. You can also, when you mentioned the Apple earlier, it's, it's a similar vibe there, isn't it? With the, uh, lucky I've managed to put most of the characters and events of the Apple out of my mind, but uh, <laughs> I do remember the, uh, like the, the evil guy in that. He's doing something similar, isn't he? He's trying to turn somebody into a star so he can use them for his own nefarious purposes, I think. Is that kind of right? I don't know. It's all like a dimly remembered nightmare. Look, you know what? Like you, Bernie, tried to put that film out of my mind. As I think I went and told you at the time, <laughs> I had heart palpitations watching The Apple. I hated oh, it that my God. much. So in that way, this film is not comparable because I like this film. This is nowhere near as much of a, a mess and a misfire as that was. Do you know, I, I think this film is a classic example of 
a movie that if you saw it when you were younger, if you saw it at the right age, then it would have completely clicked with you. I don't want to assume here, but I, I get the impression this is the case with you, Tim, because you saw it at that right age. Oh, yeah. And it just slotted into your brain perfectly. What's interesting, I saw this, oh, shit, probably I was about 12 years old. Right, yeah, yeah. Around there. And it was yeah. I was too, too young for, you know, like Heavy Metal Magazine was just coming out. So the idea of animation being more than the whole kind of children's aspect of it was all relatively still new to me at that time. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think the most intense thing that I saw before this in terms of animation when I was young was being a kid and seeing Night on Bald Mountain in Fantasia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. And seeing the demon in that and then going, holy shit, this is not for kids. Like, whoa, I didn't know animation could do this. Like, and then seeing this on television. Actually, no, that's not true. I take this back because I saw this when I was at a way young age when I was maybe about 10 was that Fantastic Planet. Right. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. And then that was another thing going, wait a minute, man, animation can do this. Like, holy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thematically, the thing about something like Fantastic Planet is there's nothing that, I guess, from Western definitions of morality, so-called morality, there's nothing in there that we would say, oh, yeah, kids can't see. But, of course, it, it is raising some very adult themes in it. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's there's nothing you can't see in it. But just imagine if you'd watched rock and roll after having watched heavy metal. You know, heavy metal is not only subversive, you know, yeah. them thematically and violently, but, you know, there's boobs galore and rock and roll is just enough subversive if you'd not seen heavy metal before pardon me for being crass for a second but i think heavy metal is just a 13 year old male hard-on power trip I agree. Uh, just like the magazine, yeah, yeah. Right. Whereas yeah. rock and roll is not male-based. It's like they're just characters. Mm. And actually, one of the leads in rock and roll is Angel. Accept my offer. No, Mark. I couldn't leave them for anything. But it's her story. Yes. And so it's not a male-driven, you know, she's not fetishized or whatever. Or she is to a point of where Mark starts to kind of lure her in. But I'm just saying, whereas heavy metal is that kind of like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, man. You know, like, this is not that at all. And I think that's why with rock and roll, it, it kind of has a wider audience. The Angel character, I feel for her because the villain is a megalomaniac. And the right. so-called hero, if you want to call that, he's a narcissist. Assist. Omar is a uh, yeah, he's a piece of shit. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so in, th right. in that way, this film is subversive because it's showing, like, if you've got young kids watching it and they're probably sort of thinking, well, hang on, he's he's a good guy. He's not really very nice. And we're showing there is a different way to tell the story. And if you contrast that to the short film that this was supposed to be an extension of, which was the earlier Nelvana short, The Devil and Daniel Mouse, that's a lot more conventional. Having said that, I really, really love The Devil and Daniel your mouse but is a more conventional faustian type story and the villain is nasty and the girl gets into trouble and her boyfriend daniel mouse is going to come and get her out of trouble and that's the conventional story from time immemorial at least as far as hollywood films are concerned but one thing i was thinking about that made the devil and daniel mouse work was its timing and i don't know how big fans you guys are of the Ardman studios but when they sort of ventured out in doing full-length feature so like wallace and gromit the curse of the were rabbit it seemed to right. me that 80 minutes was way too long 
for them to do what they had to do. All the previous Wallace and Gromit shorts that were 30 minutes, they had everything. They had story development, their character development, their excitement, all within 30 minutes. And I think that once they decided, even with Chicken Run, once yeah, they- Yeah, I was about to say, Chicken Run, to me, really felt all drawn out, really drawn out. And so I was wondering whether that was possibly the case with this film. Nelvana, they got everything just perfect within its 25-minute Devil and Daniel Mouse short. And once they had to extend it, I felt that there's definitely some sort of padding and, and combined with writing things on the fly, it doesn't always work. Yeah, I wonder if that was more to do with the writing process, though, because it's, I mean, it's not really a long film. It's, what, an hour and a quarter? Right. So I'd be inclined to think it was more down to poor writing or, you know, lack of thought going into what they were doing as opposed to just padding out the runtime, but I, I don't know. Hey! I found one thing really interesting in this interview that I read with Clive Smith. So his history of animation before coming to Canada and creating Nelvana, his background, like he started out learning to play the piano. He was a working musician. He played on stage with the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. That absolutely right. he, he was mates with Roger Spear at art school because like all the great British musicians of the 60s, they all came through art school. So I imagine that that had something to do with affecting his sense of humour. And he worked on another film that we've covered on the show. Yellow Submarine. Correct. He originally sort of got taken up by a group called Group 2 that were subtended by King Features. So he had some work on the Beatles animation series. And I've got the book that was written about the Beatles cartoon series and it lists the credits for every Beatles animation episode. And I was hoping to find Clive Smith's name in there, but obviously they didn't include absolutely everything. But he did say, yeah, he was subtended by this company called Group 2 to work on the Beatles animation series and that extended into Yellow Submarine. So he then got an invitation to work in Toronto for a series called Rocket Robin Hood. Does that sound familiar to you? Oh, yeah. Rocket Robin Hood was very, very basic animation. It came out in the late 60s, early 70s, and it was basically a staple on global television every Saturday and Sunday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning. And there was actually Rocket Robin Hood, and then there was Hercules. And the two of them, uh, side by side, you could tell they were by, animated by the same company because they were just very, like I said, very, very primitive uh, animation. But for a kid, we were just enamored with all that shit. We loved it all. Come gather around me, space travelers surround me. Hark now to the ballad of Rock and Robin I think he met through Rocket Robin Hood a couple of guys who they went and created Nelvana. Now, one thing that surprised me is I sort of thought, well, like after having done something like Rock and Rule, which 
you know, despite not knowing its audience, was subversive in its way. But because it financially nearly ruined the company, they went safe after that. They were the company behind the Care Bear movies. Right. And then they did, they basically did children's television in Canada. Mm. They did a lot of animated series for the cable network. Like I said, like a lot of straight uh, kid series. I mean, I understand from a financial perspective why they had to do that. But wow, that sort of blew my mind that they went from something like rock and roll. And I mean, I wonder whether it was purely, well this is how we're going to make our money. It's got to be purely kids. The adult world's not ready for this yet. I think this is the the problem, right, is that if you're looking at it from a music standpoint, okay, juvenile delinquents have always been around since the beginning of time. And when you've always kind of had those bands that people try to garner towards young people, you know, the, the, the like when the when the Stones first came out, you know, the, the dirty long hairs and that kind of thing, right, where – you could always attract teenagers or, you know, you, you'd always knew that you had that kind of that age bracket. Whereas with animation, they thought they might have tried to make something edgy for kids, but nothing like that had really been done before. Right. There wasn't anything aside from what Bashki was doing with Hard X. The gap between Rock and Roll and Coonskin is just like massive. Like I said, there's nothing that had ever been done before. So they really couldn't, um, you know, and like you say, they didn't know, you know, whether or not to play it for kids or for a younger audience. It's, it's just that kind of gray area. Sometimes those brothers of mine really burn my buns too. They keep this place locked up tighter than a hummingbird sweep. One thing that I think it does get right, and this is coming now to the music, is I know that like the history of rock and roll movies, and we discussed this with Alan Arkush, the whole concept that when rock music was in its infancy and rock films were in their infancy, that the position was often of the hierarchy, the older generation knowing better, and that rock music was the novelty and the musicians were always made to look like idiots or... Right. But the thing about this film is it wears its rock credibility on its sleeve and the music and the, despite the fact that you know, Mock is the evil one or whatever, but I don't think that this is aimed at making any of the musicians, either Omar and Angel's band or Mock's own music, you know, sung by Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. At no stages are they trying to make them look, hey, aren't they ridiculous? Maybe because it's the era, maybe the late 70s, the early 80s, it's like rock and roll is old enough to not have to make it look ridiculous but i saw this as you know, a good contrast between the early days of rock cinema into the question about the music itself I really like this as a soundtrack but sort of want to go around the table and did either of you guys sort of have any favourites did you pay much attention to the music I mean Tim you've seen this has been a long time part of your life so Bernie first impressions did the songs do anything for you you know they were fine I, I was kind of I'll be honest I wasn't even aware that uh, Iggy Pop or Lou Reed or Deborah Harry or Cheap Trick were involved with this so uh, my, you know that kind of got me uh, at least vaguely excited <laughs> um, but uh, 
you know, they were fine. None of them were like maybe sit up and really pay that much attention. Um, it was like, oh yeah, that sounds like Lou Reed singing. Yeah, this is all right. And uh, yeah, oh that one's obviously Iggy. But beyond that, not really, nothing too special. I mean, not bad, but not really memorable either. I mean, maybe if I sat down and listened to the soundtrack a few times. Mm. Although, actually, they, technically, it's never been released, has it, the soundtrack? I don't think it ever got released as an album. Uh, I mean, it would be locked up in rights hell forever, but somehow yeah. the whole soundtrack is available on YouTube, even every song. And it's not right. like it's just sound like it's someone's gone and extracted it from their copy of the audio of the film. It actually sounds like the songs as they would be released on a record or a CD if it was available. Yes, I, I spent some time sort of like going through that song list and really enjoyed it. Well, here's a funny thing. When bands donate a song or whatever, for example, like to compilations or like, you know, fundraisers, sometimes it's usually like a B-side or a castaway track and they don't really put a lot of effort into or getting behind the songs. But I find with this, like that song that introduces Mock, like Lou Reed, I'm Mock and Thanks a Lot. I think that's a great song. Mm, it is. It's not a throwaway. I think that, you know, like Bernie says, you know, like there's nothing stellar, but again, there's nothing to shit either. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. I think, you know, and I think that some of these tracks, I'll never say no to Cheap Trick. And, and with Iggy around this time, if you know anything about the history of Iggy Pop, he showed up at a kid's party. And clown <laughs> he you know it's a it's a decent track like all of it is i want to mention two of my highlights one of them you've already gone to mention my name is mock my name is mock thanks a lot i know you love the pain you got never seen the likes of me why i'm the biggest thing since The thing I like, not just that it's a great song, but it works in the context of the film because we're getting, I guess like in a musical, we're getting some information here and we're getting a real assessment of Mock's character. Uh, Lou Reed just sounds so great. And to be honest with you, the song sounds like it could have fit in on an album like Sally Can't Dance or The Blue Mask. And I actually think that he was using the band that he had at the time. And I think like 1982 right. was the, the Blue Mask. So it, it actually sounds to me like it could have fit in on that album. The reason I love it, it just sounds so snotty. It's just, that's that's Lou. Well, look, I'm going to ask you something here because this brings in something with the song and something with the visual because the that bit where he's singing the song, it's this really little psychedelic visual trip that's away from the story of the film. We see Mock in the background and he's moving and he's strutting around and it made me wonder if their original plan for calling him Mock would have been Mick because he's moving around like oh, Mick. Yeah. He's moving around like Mick Jagger. Yeah. I'm listening to the lines of the song. He's saying, I'm the biggest singer since World War Three. We get the girly singers in the background singing. You think he's acting, but he's not. And I wonder if that's a, a, a jibe at Mick Jagger himself. Right. Yeah, he, he does have that primping and prancing that, yeah, that's definitively Mick for sure. I'm going to compare it to another song because uh, from another film that we've actually covered on the show as well. I love it when we get a film where the villain proclaims himself and says, hey, I'm the bad guy and this is what I can do. It made me think of Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, great Levi Stubbs, oh, yeah. because there he's singing, you know, hey, I'm the Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. I'm bad. I can do all sorts of shit and you better watch yourself. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know how much of that is a thing, but, I'm, but I, there must be tons of other 
musicals where the villain comes out and says, the, the good guy never says, hey, I'm the good guy and this is why you should like me. But it, it seems to be right. a, villain, a villainous sort of thing. But yeah, anyway, great song. And I loved how it's incorporated in the film. The other thing that I loved in the film and like, as you were saying, Bernie, you know, you, you got your interest up when saying, oh, Lou Reed's in this. Oh, Iggy Pop's in this. And I was like, uh, what, what, what? And then the final list of credits, a band that we haven't mentioned there yet was Earth, Wind and Fire. Right. Yes, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, their song, Dance, Dance, Dance. Let the fun begin. I'm so glad to see you. And I'm hoping that you feel the same. Visually, as well as like, I mean, look, it's a it's a great song for me. It's no, it's pretty typical of what they were doing at the time. I mean, I know that like the early seventies, Earth, Wind, and Fire were uh, had a lot more of a hard funk edge. But by the time they got to the late seventies, the early eighties, they softened up a bit. Still, some great songs there. But this song, Dance, 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 probably sort of you know, is a lot more in common with maybe their earlier harder funk edge I mean I think their music is used in Sweet Sweetback's Badass song if I recall correctly that's that, right that hard ed- harder edge if I recall correctly rest uh, in peace Melvin Peebles yes yeah. indeed over the last couple of days I like this song but what I really liked were the visuals in that part of the film so the mm-hmm. sto- story wise Angel gets let out of her prison unknowingly by the sister of the Schlepper brothers Cinderella and they say, come on, girl, let's go have some fun at a nightclub. And all these little things, it's, uh, you, you get, and this is another thing where you sort of think, yeah, this isn't made for kids. So you get uh, Cinderella squirrel gripping her dance partner, who looks a bit like John Waters. Um, right. Patron of the club is snorting the contents of an hourglass. Tight dresses are worn with nipples showing. And there's a dope theme with kaleidoscope eyes and a box of uppers and mushrooms and needles floating about the place. So you're sort of wondering whether they're thinking, yeah, we want to make this family, but what can we get away with? And if it was only going to be shown on Canadian television at the time, then before the advent of VCRs being a common thing, maybe they thought that they could get away with it. I don't know. But it looked like Studio 54. And right. it, it was really authentic in that regard. So the mixture of that dance music. And once again, this is not a throwaway track from Earth, Wind & Fire. That's the other thing, I guess. The music is diverse. You get your sort of all-out ballsy rock from Cheap Trick. You get your sort of new wavy song from Deborah Harry. Iggy Pop and Lou Reed doing their thing in this dance number. So the music is not made for one group of music lovers and i really really love that about it oh i found it interesting that debbie harry was a part of this because you got to think what 79 to 82 is probably when blondie were at their peak Mm. and you know one could uh, argue the case that perhaps lou reed and Iggy pop and cheap trick weren't the stars at this point that they were in the 70s so to have someone like Debbie Harry at the peak of her career involved in this, I mean, I would assume expectations for this 
must have been pretty high. Obviously, they're spending that amount of money, and they're you know they're able to get someone like Debbie Harry to sign up to do this. Then yeah, expectations must have been high. Well, you know, actually, Chris Stein from Blondie also co-wrote oh, the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but see, the other thing is that like she obviously had an interest in doing some acting because I mean, when did Video Dream come out? And uh, Union City Blue, I think was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah Union yeah. City. Yeah, yeah. That came out about eighty three, eighty four. That came out roughly a little after this. Right. And video Video Dream is what about eighty five? Actually, no, might be before that. Eighty three, mm-hmm. same year as this. So she was all over the place at that point. Yeah. So this is less about her getting involvement in some little kids film. This is like, hey, would you like to do some acting? Would you like to do some voice acting? Would you like to contribute a song and be the voice for this character in a piece of animation? And I imagine that wow, to be immortalized on the big screen in this way. Wow, that's pretty exciting. So I think it's less about doing anyone a favor. I mean, all of them, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, they were all doing cinema at the time. And the other Lou Reed film that I can think of probably about from this time was uh, where he's playing the part of the the sleazy record producer in One Trick Pony. Was Iggy Pop doing any other cinema at this time? I don't think he was. No, actually, no. I mean, well, Repo Man. Oh, of course. Uh, what was that, 84, wasn't it? Repo yeah. Man, so... Yeah. I mean, a lot of musicians, once they get to a certain stage, they're frustrated actors. Then you get actors that are frustrated musicians. Well, so, some of them pull it off. Um, yeah. Like, you know, Aid Edmondson and Hugh Laurie. That, I mean, they were mus- but they were musicians to begin with who just fell into acting and then came back to music. Johnny Depp, anyone? Um, yeah. Yikes. So, yikes. Sorry, can I just digress quickly here? Actors becoming musicians. Michael C. Hall has this band called... Uh, do you know Michael C. Hall? He's the guy who played Dexter. Dexter. Yes. Well, yeah. we, we actually discussed him in Hedwig and the Angry Inch because he played oh, Hedwig... Course. On the, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a Broadway version or a Los Angeles version, but yeah, he did it on stage. So a very good singer. Well, he's got a uh, indie band called something uh, Visit to the Butterfly Museum or something like that, and they're terrible. They're so bad. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I thought, is 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 this some kind of like piss take or something? Is it supposed to be some kind of? Do you know what I mean? Sort of uh, joke nudge, or nudge, satire or nudge, something? Nudge, but, wink, wink, yeah. Uh, mm. But apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently oh, no. they're a real life band. <laughs> And they're they're terrible. Oh, man. Terrible. Yeah, they're called Princess Goes to the Butterfly Museum. And uh, as a public service to all you see here, listeners, I'm going to tell you right now, just don't. Don't listen. (laughs) Don't, don't. Don't give them any money. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Just, just steer clear. Seriously, um, you know, just let him act instead. I think a reasonably good singer, based on like the little bit of film yeah, yeah, that I saw from the stage production of Hedwig. You know, he can carry a tune. Don't get me wrong, but oh my right. god, how bad is the tune? You know, <laughs> so uh, yikes. I'm sorry, Michael, if you're listening. Need a, but need a bigger I just, bucket to carry that to. Oh, my God. Oh my need God, a skip. Yeah. Need a bucket with a hole in it. Sorry, I totally derailed you there, Morris. Carry on with your thought if you can remember what it was. Oh, it's the derailments that make the show interesting. <laughs> uh, we've got to discuss a lot about the technical side of it and maybe plot shortcomings and the like, but I think we're probably of, an, of a mind that overall it's still quite an enjoyable, watchable film. But, Bernie, what was it about the film that you would say that was positive? Like a story? 
story, a plot point? Was there something in there that you thought, yeah, this is actually quite good. I'm engaged with this. Well, I'll be honest with you. It's uh, what I was saying earlier, just the, the general aesthetic, some of the animation, the look and the feel. You know, the songs aren't bad, but other than that, and as I was saying as well, if you'd have come to this when you were younger, then it would be easier to overlook a lot of the stuff, which I just found intolerable was probably too strong a word, but just very grating. And a lot of that relates to, again, as you and Tim were talking about, just the tone of the film, the way it can decide whether it's for grown-ups or for kids. And subsequently, you've got the uh, the two other band members, um, who I can't remember what they're called. Stretch and Dizzy. Yeah, both super annoying sort of kids cartoon characters, just right. just oh, terrible. And the same with the, uh, was it the Schlepper Brothers, Mox uh, Henchman? Right. Just awful. Just, you know, if you were seven years old, you might find it funny. And there was just uh, the uh, the policeman they keep bumping into and stealing his car. <laughs> That's There's just too much of that for me to kind of get behind it, really. I can't get behind that! I'm a grumpy, negative, miserable old fart, and <laughs> I, just, I, I find it difficult not to see the bad things and unfortunately at this point the bad certainly outweighs the good you're the robert criscow of the team right i guess i am i guess i am yeah i offer uh, no, i offer I mean, no like, apologies no i am what you know, i am you don't have to apologize Marine. i mean like that's just it i mean you know i had my ishtar moment sure so, well, yeah 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 again i'm not i'm not making excuses for this film in any way shape or form but i think what's interesting with animation is that it's hard enough to keep motion pictures straight motion pictures timeless you know or, or to kind of maintain that time or to achieve that timeless quality you know but with animation i think it's even harder to really create art that's timeless and i think a lot of stuff is just so dated so easily and so quickly i was gonna say it's interesting that you say that because this is dated but it is right. in kind of a positive way i mean currently that kind of 80s aesthetic is actually fairly popular with the younger people again isn't it it's coming around and, again and certainly uh, at this point i I mean, looking at this film, yes, it's very much of its time, but I think that's one of the positives about it. Maybe in 10, 20 years time when it won't quite feel like that. But certainly uh, currently, I, I think that's one of the stronger things it's got going for it. So Right. You know, what you were talking about, Morris, about the, uh, you know, how it was almost like Studio 54. Mm. This is kind of a, I've had this discussion with people before that it's kind of a weird thing to say. But what was considered suitable for young people to view back in the day is eons from what is considered suitable for young people to view today. 100%. And I mean, you know, like back in the day with films being rated as PG and, you know, as a kid, you know, like I went and saw a, a double bill of Steve Martin, The Jerk with Cheech and Chong's next movie. And, I, you know, I was able to walk in and see that. No problem. So, I mean, I think at that time they were able to take some liberties with certain things of animation or, or to kind of make it a little bit more, I don't want to call it sophisticated, but a little bit more um, grown up, I guess you could say. Whereas today it would be just like no 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 it eventually gets to a point where even like when uh ralph bashke did he redid mighty mouse when it came back in the mm -hmm. uh, the late 80s i think and he caught hell because there was a scene of mighty mouse sniffing a poppy and suddenly getting this enormous <laughs> blast of energy and they said you can't do that and he said, what the hell not? Like, it's it's a cartoon. You know, it's not real life. It was even funny. Bashy's saying, like, look, you have no problem with a mouse that talks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you're freaking out that this mouse is, is sniffing a flower and catching a rush off. Like, mm. you know, at the time, though, like I said, like, you know, things started to change and the whole thing about animation, you know, about being suitable or, or being edgy. And then a lot of the Japanese stuff started happening where that started kicking in. And that was where everything went, whoa, they just ain't for kids anymore. I mean, that, that was something that I sort of thought while watching parts of this film. I mean, maybe not necessarily of the Japanese style of animation. It doesn't look like anime, but there's some level of detail. Like, so for instance, when we see Mock's spaceship flying over New York, or we're getting like these aerial shots. And I think there's that level of detail that right. is common in Japanese mm-hmm. animation. So, right. okay, we all agree that from a visual perspective and aesthetic, as you said, Bernie, they did their homework. They did a really, really terrific job. And look, I'm just sort of going to remain on the positive side of the fence that, yeah, sure, there are issues with the film, but I like to think that as much as Ralph Bakshi, that animators who came around in the 90s and became so subversive that it's not considered subversive anymore, it's, be- it's become the norm, they owe a debt to what this film w- was trying to do. But I think that, once again, they're the issue was either through MGM interference or through writing on the fly, they couldn't quite decide what they wanted to do. And if it had been purely a kid's film or purely an adult film without the annoying characters, as you say, Burn, then it mm-hmm. probably would have been a lot better. And i got to say, though, that the conclusion of the film, the final scene where Mock is calling up the satanic monster from the other dimension. It's evil. That is actually pretty spectacular. That I, is fantastic. I will, yeah, that, I'll give it that. That that scene is actually quite impressive. It's not just great visually. I mean, it's fantastic visually, but in terms of story development, in terms of build-up and where Omar finally realises, I do value my friend. I've got to stop being an asshole. we got to sing together to push the beast back, which is you know, a little bit kitschy, but okay, I, I, you run with it. And everything falls into place. It feels like everything's sort of built up to this. The schlepper brother realizes oh his brother's dead and he's going to get his revenge on mock and it gets really super dark in a way that the rest of the film is trying to work towards but this is where it all comes together and so that conclusion to me i i absolutely love it for that i, I still say like i mean i'm not going to give it a numerical rating because we don't do that here but it remains on the plus side of was this a good film i'd say yes it is and as i think one of you said earlier on this film is available on youtube there are both the Canadian and the American versions doesn't matter. The the differences are, I think, quite minute. It is definitely worth a watch. Uh, 75 minutes of your time. Yeah, there are weaknesses, but I think that overall, if you don't go into analytically, you might actually sort of come away thinking, those guys didn't know what the hell they were talking about. I'd recommend this for people, you know, like for example, you've seen Akira, you've seen Metal Storm, you've seen, you know, some of the 80s benchmark animated films, like everyone thinks they've seen them all. This is a fun little one to watch, but it's just kind of, for those of us in Canada that grew up with this, it's kind of going back 
and maybe I'm, you know, waxing a little bit nostalgic, but it would almost be the same for you, Burn, like Thunderbirds, you know what I mean? No, not Thunderbirds, but something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know what I know what you, you mean. Know, you know what I, I, mean. I know exactly what you mean. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. like I said earlier, if, if you call this at the right age, then I can understand that it would have a huge amount of appeal and nostalgia and you mm-hmm. could be very fond of it and uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all no. but coming to it cold as a uh, 50 year yeah. old misery yeah. Cuts, it's just like <laughs> Yeah, not really for me. I mean, I, I wouldn't say avoid it. There's enough of in there of interest, if you like the sound of some of the stuff we've been discussing. It's worth a look, but it's it's certainly not something I would go back to. Or I didn't ask you, Bernie, did you get the chance to watch The Devil and Daniel Mouse? I didn't, no. No, okay. I didn't. I'd be yeah. interested. So give that a watch. It's only like 25 minutes. Send me a note saying, yeah, nah. Or actually, or maybe <laughs> nah, if you enjoyed yeah. that, if maybe it's hard to believe, right? It's twenty five minutes, so mm-hmm. it, it's not stretched out as much, and it gets to the point a lot quicker. And story wise and character development wise, you've seen that sort of stuff before. But being so brief and having to get to the point a lot sooner, I found myself, wow, this is something I'll come back to. There you go. There are our thoughts. Certainly, if you're a a lover of animation and you haven't seen this then you should definitely watch this because this is part of the animation story the development of animation so I like you and I like this town I mean you and this wonderful town I like you you put a smile on my face hometown town it's my kind of place there you go well that concludes our discussion of rock and rule hope you enjoyed it if you disagree with us let us know send us an email if you agree with us send us your thoughts let us know join the facebook group facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast instagram at see here podcast email if you choose to go down that route and i'd love getting emails see here podcast at gmail.com so we should talk about what's going to happen next month that being october 2021 i had a plan originally to talk about two or three documentaries from a fellow called Les Blank. He was very instrumental in documenting life in America's South and in particularly talking about musicians and music in as their role in everyday life. And we may well come back to that, but I've decided to put that on the back burner for a few reasons for the moment. So I'd previously gone and asked our good friend Mike White over at the projection booth to be part of that episode. So when I decided maybe we'll save Les Blank's films for later, I said to Mike, well, what would you like to talk about? And he said, well, I've never watched Breaking Glass. So can we do that? I thought, okay. So Breaking Glass is on YouTube. If uh, you guys have seen that, the Hazel O'Connor film. Uh, have either of you guys seen that before? I've seen it years ago on uh, late um, night television. I have not seen it, but I know certainly the song Breaking Glass extremely well because mm. it was a huge hit over here around the time of the film's release. For some reason, when he mentioned Breaking Glass, I don't know. First thing that came into my mind was Times Square, which very different film. But, but anyway, no, it's Breaking Glass on YouTube if you want to follow along. So that will be next month. We'll be with Mike White. Thanks very much for downloading. Thanks very much for listening. Please let your friends know that the show exists. We're part of the Pantheon Network. Until next month, look after yourself. Get the jab. Don't go rampaging through the streets. It's stupid. It's not nice. It upsets people. And until next month, look after each other. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 